that we will be known as those who love God and love men with all of our hearts. Father, cause your truth to speak to our hearts and transform our lives, to give us direction and impassion us. For Lord, there are many who don't have an understanding of you and many who as of yet have not heard the good news of Christ. Bless us in our time of worship, and we'll give you all the glory as we pray in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. What day is it? If I were to ask that question, I might get various answers. Some would just say it's October 16, 2016. Some of you might say, it's my birthday. Do we have anybody like that? Anybody with a birthday today? Ah, you're afraid we're going to sing to you, so you won't mention it. <laughs> Some of you who realize who's asking the question and where you're sitting this morning would come with a pious answer, it's the Lord's Day. <laughs> and it is the Lord's Day. Nothing wrong with that. But what if I enlarge the question when I said, what day is it? I'm not referring to a single day, but a, a season. What season is it? And some of you say, it's the day for football. Oh, that we had some in our area. <laughs> uh, other sports-minded people will say, well, it's the playoffs and the cubbies are in, finally. Some will say it's fall. And kids will lament, it's the day to go back to school. But suppose I enlarge it beyond the day and beyond the season to an age, an era, an epoch. What day is it? And the biblical response, appropriately so, is this is the day or age of grace. The day of grace. It's not one particular day. It's not even a short season, but it is a large epoch. It's a period of time that actually is between the two comings of Christ. It's the time between the advents. So Jesus comes as a baby, and begins the last days and introduces the age of grace in a unique way, the beginning of a new covenant, replacing the old covenant. That is, the old covenant was with the sacrifice of animals and the, the system revealed in the Old Testament with human priests, but now we have a high priest, God himself, who is both priest and sacrifice. I say the age of grace is between the two comings because when Jesus comes again, that is to the earth, he'll come for judgment. And so the time between the comings is called the age of grace, the period between the two advents. This is a day of good news. And yet I hear echoing in my mind and heart the words of the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians where he says, and yet some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. So it's an age of grace, but not everyone knows it's the age of grace. And it's important for us to remember what we need to do in this wonderful period of time. And so we're going to have a missions conference starting next Sunday. We have it every year. But it's an important 
uh, event in the life of our church because it's a time to inform us once again of the universal need of people everywhere. It's a time to remind us of the wonderful privilege you and I have in this age of grace to tell others the good news about Christ. It's a time to encourage us that we would live up to our responsibility and that we would make sure that our lives are lived by the grace of God. So tucked away in the Old Testament book, the mysterious, somewhat enigmatic book of 2 Kings, is a story that talks about grace. It's in the history of Elisha. It's a tragic tale, but a wonderful story. It's a parable from the age of the kings that emphasizes the fact that we are in the age of grace. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. And times could not have been worse. We'll call this the day of the people's desperation. It was a desperate day. And I want you to notice the verse 24. Sometime later, after Elisha had delivered the people of God from the Syrian army, Sometime later, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, the Syrians, mobilized his entire army and marched up and laid siege to Samaria. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom called Israel. And there was a great famine in the city because the siege lasted so long, a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver. Now that's about two pounds of silver. These are hugely inflated prices. And we're talking about a donkey's head, which according to Leviticus is an unclean animal. They shouldn't even be eating it, but desperate times call for desperate measures. And a quarter of a cab of seed pods sold for two ounces of silver, five shekels. I like the older translation. Instead of seed pods, it says dove's dung. That's a delicacy you like, isn't it? The droppings of the dove. Only two ounces of silver. I mean, times were bad and desperate. But it even gets worse. Verse 26 says, The king of Israel, Joram, was passing on the wall. A woman cried to him, Help me, my lord, the king. And the king said, If the lord doesn't help you, where can I get help for you? From the threshing floor? From the wine press? You see, the king was blaming, blaming God. And he says, well, what's the matter? Verse 28. She said, well, this woman said to me, give up your son so we might eat him today. Tomorrow we'll eat my son. So we cooked my son and ate him. The next day I said to her, give up your son so we might eat him. And she's hidden her son. Cannibalism in the capital of Israel, the people of God. So that a mother would butcher her child, the child she had birthed. And this woman <clears throat> was not so upset that she lost her son. She was upset that he lo she lost her supper. We'd made an agreement. And now this woman is reneging. Things were bad. 
Did you know that if you read Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 28, in both of those chapters, it is repeated that when the people of God stray from obeying God, there will be at least three consequences. Number one, military defeat. Number two, great famine. And number three, cannibalism. The reason why these things were happening is because the people had left God. And you, wonder why, you want to know why, in part, America is in such turmoil and trouble today? The answer is rather simple. We have departed from God. But Joram didn't blame himself. He blamed God. Or as we're going to see in a moment, he blamed God's prophet. So when the king heard these words, he ripped open his robe, I'm sure out of anger, and there was sackcloth. In the Old Testament, people would wear sackcloth usually for one of three reasons. One, because they were in mourning. Two, because they were praying and beseeching God for something. And the third reason was uh, simply because they truly wanted to repent of their sin and they were sorry for what they had done. Now, I'm not sure which one of these reasons was true of Joram, and maybe none of them were. Maybe he just was so upset, he said, well, what I'm supposed to do is, to do is put on sackcloth. I'll, tr I'll give it a try. Nothing else works. By the way, when things get desperate, people take desperate measures, and they even get religious. Nothing else has worked. We'll give it a try. But I don't think his heart had really been changed. And so he says in verse 31, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if the head of Elisha, son of Saphat, remains on his shoulders today. So he says, I'm blaming God, and I'm blaming the prophet. By the way, that sounds very familiar. Those are the same words that Jezebel said in 1 Kings chapter 19. Where did this king get them? Jezebel's his mom. And so the kids follow the way of the parents, and now he's going after Elisha, just like Jezebel went after Elijah, and his anger is against God. But verse 32, Elijah's sitting in his house. Now, he's in the city. He's enduring the famine, but he's not worried. He had already told, counseled the king to wait on God to deliver them, and the king was tired of that, so... He was going after Elijah. Elijah knows he's coming. Do you hear the steps of the murderer who's coming to my house? So they bar the door, and he finally gets there. And the king says, last verse in chapter 6, last part of the verse, this disaster is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? He's not doing his part. And Elijah just lets him talk. Chapter 7. Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Oh, I love that. America, hear the word of the Lord. Let's forget America for a moment. South Church, hear the word of the Lord. This is what God says. About this time tomorrow, a selah of fine flour will sell for a shekel, and two selahs of barley, food for the animals, 
for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. You can't believe there'd be that kind of a quick turnaround. But I'm telling you, my friend, there is coming a day when every nation in this world will bow the knee to Christ as king. It may not happen tomorrow, but it could. But one day it will happen. And let the world mock. Because that's exactly what they did. The chief officer of the king, verse 2. The officer on whom, whose arm the king was leaning said to the man of God, look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of heaven, could this happen? Elisha said, you'll see it with your eyes, but you won't eat of it. That was the word of the Lord. So now you've got people blaming God like the king, and you've got people doubting God like this chief officer. But very few people trusting God like Elijah, the day of desperation. The human race is in a deplorable situation because we have turned away from God and our only hope is to repent. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, I'll hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sin. I'll heal their land. Notice verse 3. Now we might call this the day of the Lord's intervention. There were four leprous men at the entrance of the city gate. They said to each other, why stay here until we die? I mean, these guys really had it tough, didn't they? They were dying, too, because of the famine, but they were also dying because of a disease. So they said, why stay here? Verse 4, if we go into the city, the famine is there, and we'll die. And by the way, they were barred from being in the city because they were lepers. They had to stay away. Couldn't come close. Quarantine. If we stay here, the famine will kill us if the disease doesn't. So let's go to the camp of the Arameans the Syrians, and let's surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, we but die. So here are your choices. Stay where you are and die. Go into the city and die. Go to the Syrians and die. Uh, there's a slight chance they might let us live. Let's go to the Syrians. Desperate times call for desperate measures. When you get desperate, you take action. Verse 5, so they waited till dusk. So, uh, you know, maybe they could go when most of the army was sleeping and they'd only have to deal with the guards. They went to the camp, verse 5, and when they reached the edge of the camp, not a man was there. For the Lord had called the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army. And they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up, fled in the night, abandoned their tents and their horses and their donkeys. They left camp and ran for their lives. And they ran about 25 miles to the Jordan River with supplies strewn all along the way. Verse 8, the men with leprosy reached the edge of the camp. They entered one of the tents. No one was there. So they ate and they drank <laughs> and they even carried away gold and silver and, and clothes and they went off and hid them. 
And then they returned and entered another tent and took some more things and hid those things also. God had intervened in a supernatural way and provided an abundance for them that they could not take in themselves. Verse 9, then they said to each other, we're not doing right. This is a day of good news and we're keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. So let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. God intervened in times had never been better. And famine was turned into unbelievable feasting. What a wonderful picture of someone coming to faith in Jesus Christ dead in our trespasses and in our sins, on our way to die, not just one death but two, physical and spiritual, the second death is to, our, is to be ours. Appointed unto man wants to die. After this, the judgment. We're in a desperate situation, so we flee to Christ, and Jesus saves us. And we begin to feast on his goodness and kindness and mercy, and grace, and his forgiveness, and his peace. It's all ours, and we just take it in and take it in. By the way, there's nothing wrong with that. Psalm 34 and verse 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I don't fault the lepers in verse 8 for taking everything they could get. Now, they were a little greedy. They would go and hide it somewhere and come and get some more and go and hide it. You would have done the same thing. I would have too. Just taking it in. Let's stay here and feast. Let's take it all in. There's nothing wrong with the fact that they took it all in first. In fact, had they tried to go tell someone of their find and the person said, oh, you found a bunch of food? Yes, we did. Did you eat any of it? No, we didn't. You're starving? Yes. You're dying? Yes. You didn't eat the food? No. Trap. <laughs> right? I don't trust these guys. But if they came in with the sauce down their cheek and their clothes spattered with food and their bellies now uh, filled with that food and maybe a chicken leg in the hand. Ah, these guys have found something. How can you tell others about Christ until you feasted first? I won't eat the cook's food who doesn't eat it himself. Taste and see that the Lord is good. But here's the problem. You and I like the food so much, we don't want to leave. We just want to stay and take it in. I found this old hymn that the church used to sing. It's about the Lord's Day. It's really a wonderful hymn in some respects. Welcome, sweet day of rest that saw the Lord arise. Welcome to this longing breast and these rejoicing eyes. The King himself comes near, his glories to display. Before his presence we appear and wait and sing and pray. Aren't Sundays great for the child of God? One day amidst the place where Jesus is within is better than a thousand days in the palaces of sin. Now notice the last stanza. Our willing souls would stay in such a place as this 
till at his word they soar away to realms of perfect, perfect bliss. Let's just stay and worship and drink it all in. And God says, no. Nothing wrong with enjoying Sundays, but you shouldn't be here all week. Because there's a lost world that knows nothing about the abundance of Christ, and they've not yet heard of his name. What an amazing parable with so many analogies to our present situation that illustrates where we are like a church. You see, to stay and feast and never tell, that's not good. This is a day of good news, and we're not doing what is good. It's called the sin of silence. 1 Corinthians 15, 34, that entire verse says, Awake to righteousness, and don't sin, for some don't have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. That's in the midst of the chapter on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is so great. We rejoice in that chapter on Easter, and every Sunday we think of the resurrection of Christ, but it's to our shame that so many people don't know. And that's why we want to be a missions-minded church. The church should be like a nursery. Ever been to a nursery? Got a bunch of trees there. And they're all on a small parcel of ground. And they're well taken care of, and I'm, I suppose if you would talk to the trees, the trees might say, you know, this is a great place to live. These guys feed me, they prune me, they water me, they make sure I've got perfect care. But the purpose of those trees is not to stay in the nursery, but to be transplanted all over the world so that they might bear fruit in distant places. And the church is like a nursery. I'm glad God has planted you and planted me here at South Church where we can be watered and nourished and encouraged. But God's goal is not for us to stay here. We must go out. We must share the good news. We do not well if we stay here as mute as mice. Some of us intimidated and afraid to speak to others. Some of us ignorant, not knowing about the need or how to present the solution. Some of us, we're too polite. We don't want to ruffle any feathers. Some of us are just afraid. But it's not good to stay here and do nothing. Why is it not good? To remain silent? Let me give you three reasons. Number one, divine intentionality. It was contrary to the divine purpose of leading them to the spoil. Do you know why God saved you? For his glory? Yes. So that you wouldn't die and spend eternity separated from him? Yes. There's more. The third reason is so that you would tell someone else. I mean, he can save you for his glory and keep you from hell and take you immediately to heaven, but he hasn't because he wants you to be his ambassador. What kind of ambassador are you? The divine reason for bringing you into grace is so that you might share 
grace with others. And you do not well if you never say anything. You say, but I'm just not articulate like Moses. I can't speak. Oh, we've got 101 reasons. But you know what you can do? You can pray for others. And you know what you can do? You might be able to give a little literature. And If your neighbors don't know that you're a Christian, if your coworkers don't know that you're a Christian, it must not be very important to you. And at some point in time, you can just put in a little witness that might turn into a wonderful speaking opportunity. Where's our passion? Where's our concern? Secondly, we have a moral responsibility. We do not well, said the lepers. And if they just sat there having the answer to the whole city's need and doing nothing, well, that is brutal and inhumane. Suppose they would have waited 24 hours. How many people would have died in Samaria? And they realized, hey, we can't just be silent. We've got to say something. Someone has said that the Great Commission, which talks about going into all the world, making disciples of all nations, the Great Commission has become the Great Omission. And some of us are quick to pat ourselves on the back because we've not committed any sins of transgression. We've not broken the law. We've not done something we shouldn't do, at least so we think. Our lives are pretty clean, but we sin far more in the realm of sins of omission, not doing what we should do. And that's what we're talking about today. Our moral responsibility. Next week, our missions conference is all about global missions. For the most part. This year, we are creating another mission board. At least a committee, at least a team. They won't be on the official board, but another mission board, and it's going to be local missions. We need a global missions board. We need a local missions board because we've got to take the gospel to our own Jerusalem. and We've got to get serious about it. Oh, some of you are. Some good things are being done. But in a day of good news, it's not good to remain silent. We have a moral responsibility to share the good news with others. And thirdly, there's future accountability. Look at verse 9. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Now, they, what they were saying is basically this. Hey, if we don't say anything and word gets out, that we had all this abundance and didn't share it with anyone? How selfish is that? Punishment will come to us. And did you know, my friend, that a day is coming in which the Lord Jesus Christ will come again and part of his coming and the afterward is called the judgment seat of Christ. Read about it in 2 Corinthians 5 where all of us will receive the things done in our body according to what we have done whether it's good or bad, there is a future day of accountability. Remember the parable of the talent? I gave you 10. Owner comes back. What'd you do with them? I gave you five. What'd you do with them? I gave you one. I buried it. That's what you did with what I gave you? Yeah, didn't want to lose it. Wanted to protect it. You're supposed to use it. Invest it. Share it, multiply it. 
the day of accountability. If you think there's shame now, what will that day be like when the Father comes back and we must meet him empty-handed? To be saved so as by fire? Yes, by the grace of God. But what a sad day that will be. And so the great commission is often the great omission. But I like verse 9. The last part says, we'll go at once and report this to the palace. Now, the palace didn't believe at first, and they sent some scouts and found it to be true. And found that God had routed the whole army. And that chief officer who said it will never happen, well, the people were so hungry to get food, they stampeded out of the city of Samaria to get to the tents of the Syrians. And that guard by the door was trampled to death. He heard about it and never ate it. And one thing that this passage tells us is that when God speaks and promises, his word is always true. So rescue the perishing. Care for the dying. Snatch them in pity from sin in the grave. Weep o'er the erring ones, lift up the fallen. Tell them of Jesus who's mighty to save. This is a day of good news. And we do not well if we hold our peace. God has taken us from famine to feasting. And let's tell others about the feast we found. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this season of missions conference and a reminder of our responsibility. I thank you for this story that not only moves along the redemptive history of Israel to show how you defended your people and, and even in their sin, you rescued your people. They didn't deserve it, but you did. And how the word of the prophet was true. Wait on God, and the floodgates will open. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful illustration this is to remind us that we too have a moral responsibility to share the good news of Christ in this age of grace while we have time, while we have opportunity. And Lord, I pray that we would be able to reach Lansing in a greater way in this next year than we ever have before. In Jesus' name, amen.